see justice done and to see skilled lawyers weave their magic. Well, Acts 24 is a courtroom scene. And today we're looking at Paul, who's on trial, uh, simply because of his faith. But as we go through this passage, I want to look at the three main players here. The religious Jews, the irreligious Felix, and the transformed Paul. And I want you guys uh, to be the jury and you guys to come up with a verdict in the, in the end as to who's living uh, the right life. So let's have a look firstly at the persecution uh, to Tullus, the Jews, and the trumped-up charges. Well, Tertullus is a high-class, deeply skilled and totally corrupt lawyer who's working for the Jews to try and convict Paul. Now, remember the Jews are absolutely desperate to get Paul uh, found guilty, um, imprisoned and preferably killed. Uh, we've seen the riots over the last few weeks in Jerusalem. On three times, we're told that the whole city was aroused or in an uproar. They were shouting, they were throwing off their cloaks, throwing dust into the air, beating up Paul. And then last week, 40 Jews... Uh, made an oath that they uh, would not eat until Paul had been killed. Now, that was five days ago from this passage, so they're getting desperate and very hungry, and they want Paul done away with. And so they've employed Tertullus to do the work for them. And Tertullus starts off in verse 2 with flattery. We have enjoyed a long piece of, a period of peace under you and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. You can just see him pouring out that verbal uh, diarrhoea in front of Felix. Uh, yet, but it's blatant lies. The so-called long period of peace just hasn't happened uh, with Felix in control. In fact, in fact, Judea was a hotbed of simmering tension, ready to boil over at any time. And we saw that in Paul's case. In fact, after the riots, Paul was uh, escorted to Caesarea by 472 soldiers. That's 200 foot soldiers, 200 spearmen and 70 horsemen. As for Felix being of noble or excellent character, well, we'll get to him in a minute. But there's something perhaps more sinister in this uh, uh, flattery of Tertullus, and that is there might be a veiled threat that if uh, Felix doesn't side with the Jews, then trouble might be coming his way. And what are the charges that he makes of Paul? Well, verse 5, that he created disturbances uh, among the Jews throughout the empire. Well, that's a blatant lie. We've seen what's happened. It is the Jews themselves that should be on trial for that. They're the ones that caused the riots. Secondly, in verse 5 to 6, that he was a ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes. And notice the language that Tertullus has cleverly weaved in here. A ringleader of a sect makes Paul seem like a crazy, uh, dangerous sort of leader. And, and the term Nazareth, Nazarene, we know from Nathaniel in John's Gospel that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Um, and therefore, not only might they be crazy, but they might be dangerous. There might be a criminal element here. And then thirdly, in verse 6, that he attempted to profane the temple, a crime which the Jews were permitted to punish, but again, a blatant lie. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, at this time in uh, history, that Christians were seen as being detrimental to the society. Uh, their way of life, their morality, their worship was at odds with what was happening in the Roman Empire at this time. They looked on with suspicion and caution. They were seen as being dangerous. Justin Martyr in the 2nd century uh, was famous for arguing in front of the emperor 
at the time how Christians are actually good for society, that they're the emperor's best friends in serving good order. And yet it wasn't believed he was martyred along with many others because Christians were seen as dangerous. And we've enjoyed many centuries where that's not the case. But I think we're definitely entering a time where first century is very similar to where we are today. Maybe just two generations ago, Christianity was still seen as good for society. Um, you might not have been a Christian yourself, but you could see the value of the Christian faith. Perhaps the last generation, it became very indifferent. If they want to do that, that's fine, but it's not for me. But this uh, generation, I think we've seen a shift. And we've seen the troubling trend where Christians are often targeted and what they believe, the values they hold, are seen as quite dangerous and detrimental to our modern-day society. They're called bigoted, judgmental, fundamentalist. I don't know if you watched 60 Minutes uh, two weeks ago, but uh, a very one-sided report on homosexual counselling in the church. And the uh, interviewer, uh, we, we were left in no doubt her position that how dare you call someone broken or sinful who has adopted that way of life, that lifestyle. I think we saw it in the same-sex marriage debate, the abortion debate as well, that we stand at odds with the thinking of society today. But the way, uh, the way Paul has conducted himself through this trial is a great witness for us as well. He says to the Corinthians, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. And that is exactly how Paul is conducting himself here. And like I said, a great witness and example for us. Hasn't always been the case, sadly, with Christians as they defend their position. But I was encouraged as I uh, saw the same-sex marriage debate um, that so many Christians were able to um, hold their position firmly in love um, and often the opposition didn't. And, and as you see in verse 9, uh, all of the Jews joined in asserting these false allegations against Paul. I think it's a scathing picture of God's chosen people. The leaders of the Jewish nation, we've seen flattery, we've seen blatant lying, bearing false witness, uh, their hatred for the Gentiles, the beating and seeking to murder Paul and to silence his beliefs. It makes you realise why Jesus had to come. And it's, it's stated clearly in Acts 3.26, when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. That's the heart of the gospel. It's a changed heart, a transformed life. And because left to our own, we are not capable of doing that. Uh, we'll always have ulterior motives and agenda, consciously or not. And what is on display here? God's chosen people. If anyone should have been morally upright, it was them. And yet they fare no better than their pagan masters, the Romans, when it comes to moral living. And that's been the repeated pattern through church history. Both the religious and the irreligious have been found wanting. It's only the transforming power of the gospel that can change a life. And that's uh, the perfect example we have here of Paul. Uh, a couple of years ago, he would have been one of those Jews uh, throwing accusations against Christians, sometimes not even affording the Christians a trial. But he was set, like these Jews, on rounding up Christians and stamping out their faith. Here he is, completely transformed by an encounter he's had with Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verse 10 to 21 to give his defence. 
He comes across as anything but a victim or a prisoner in this account. He's the one who's confident and fearless and free. His identity is secured, his purpose clear. He starts his defence um, to Felix, not with the flattery we saw from Tertullus, but uh, respect for his position. And then in verse 10, um, he speaks the truth. He lets the truth speak for itself. He quickly dismisses the charges against him for the empty nonsense that it is, and he boldly proclaims the heart of the gospel on two occasions, saying it is because of his belief in the resurrection of the dead that he stands before Felix today. That's why he's on trial. That's what he's prepared to die for. We're told after this that Paul uh, is kept under guard and for two years uh, he is in prison but with the freedom to see friends. He regularly meets with Felix and his wife Drusilla and he shares his faith in Christ, particularly dealing with self, uh, speaking about self-control and righteousness and judgment. Now why these three topics? Well, because that's what Felix needed to hear more than anything. Paul didn't beat around the bush. He didn't skirt around the main issues. He went straight for the heart, as politically dangerous and uh, incorrect as that might have been. What a contrast to Tertullus' approach of flattery. And what a challenge for us today when we consider how we share our faith and the opportunities we might take or might not take. I know when I'm in certain situations, uh, for instance, when someone asks me what I do for a living, I can say I'm a teacher, which is true but it doesn't give me much opportunity to go further with that. I can say I'm a chaplain, which is better, but still pretty safe. But how often am I prepared to say, well, I teach people about Jesus Christ, or I tell people about the resurrection of the dead and the hope they can have for eternal life? Uh, that would get to the point, wouldn't it? <laughs> but I'm afraid to do that. And how do you go when people ask you, what did you do on the weekend? How many will say, I went to church? It's pretty safe. How many will say, I heard a talk about the hope we can have in the resurrection and in what Jesus Christ has done for us? Maybe the person wouldn't respond too well for that. Maybe it's just what they need to hear. And what about when Christianity is under attack? When people have a go at the latest events in the news, there's been ample opportunity to show our colours, to stand up and give our viewpoint. And I think Paul is a great encouragement for us of someone who does that, who's prepared to be bold. May we be the same. And while we're on Paul, let me mention one last great example for us, that Paul has an incredible trust in God here. I mean, from a human perspective, his situation looks quite dire, doesn't it? Two years imprisoned. For, for nothing. He's, he's innocent. He's just followed Christ. And he could easily cry out to God, why have you let this happen? Why am I in this situation? I've served you faithfully and I get prison as a result for it. And yet Paul doesn't do that. In fact, none of the disciples or apostles ever do that. Um, they never blame God. It's as if they expected to suffer. Perhaps they took Jesus' words literally that they would have to carry a cross that they persecuted the master, they'll persecute the servant as well. And so Paul expects this sort of treatment for his ownership of the gospel. And as a result, he completely trusts and relies on God. And I think he holds very deeply 
to the words he wrote to the Romans that all things work for the good of those who love God and accord according to his purposes. Paul knows that even in this situation, perhaps especially in this situation, God is at work uh, for good. Perhaps it was the writing of Luke's gospel, which no doubt was largely influenced at this time as Luke spent time with Paul over those years and Paul being Luke's spiritual mentor had plenty of input into his life to verify stories and share uh, what Luke was writing, perhaps even the book of Acts. Certainly the book of Philippians came to us at this time as Paul writes in chains. Um, many great things we can see have come as Paul has been given this time to reflect on what God has done. And I love that the book of Philippians, the key theme is joy and contentment, despite what's happening in our life around us. Paul will also say at this time in the book of Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Such was his faith that even death held no fear for him. Hence why he could be so bold. I remember hearing a story of Billy Sunday in the 1930s who was preaching against the evils of alcohol when the prohibition was on and uh, the mafia uh, were losing business. So they cornered him one night and put a gun to his head and said, you stop preaching or we'll shoot. And his response was, are you threatening me with heaven? <laughs> I feel like Paul's in that position. So confident of his faith, of his destiny, that he can stand boldly in the face of adversity, knowing what is to come. And then we've got the judge, Felix, the irreligious. Now, Felix began life as a slave, interestingly enough, and he had a brother, Paulus, who was good friends with Claudius, the emperor. And having a family in high places was very beneficial to Felix. First, it released him from slavery. Secondly, it gave him a high command in the army. And finally, it landed him this very... Uh, prestigious role as governor of a Roman province. But his slave mentality remained with him. Tacitus, the Roman historian, described Felix as a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the power of a king with the spirit of a slave. He crushed several rebellions with such brutality that instead of winning the, the favour of the Jews, he actually won their horror. In one point, he massacred thousands of Jews in Caesarea and looted their homes. Tacitus goes on to say that Felix indulged in every license and excess, thinking that he could do any evil act with impunity. This includes how he acquired his third wife, Drusilla. She was only married a couple of days before he took her from her husband and made her his own. Beautiful, ambitious, at 20 years of age. And yet despite all this, verse 22, he was familiar with the way, the Christian faith. Maybe he resonated with Jesus, the rags to riches story, an extraordinary life. In Jesus, he might have felt some affinity. But whatever the case, Felix's head knowledge did not move to his heart or any action. And the interesting thing about this passage is that though Paul is the one on trial, you get the feeling that it really is Felix on trial. He's the one that calls Paul in to talk with him in verse 24 to 26. He's the one who is scared and uncertain. You get the feeling that doesn't sleep too well at night. He's the one seeking a bribe, either for his own pocket or perhaps to dismiss Paul and expose him, his character, and then maybe dismiss the words he's saying. 
But Felix's character is flawed. His ego needs to be stoked. Um, he seems to be the one on trial. And I think it's the outcome of a life lived under the banner of no restraint, of freedom at all costs, follow your heart's desires, the mantra that's all too common in today's world but can leave a wake of broken relationships and regret behind. We live in a world that celebrates self-esteem and self-promotion and self-expression and self-actualization, but not self-control and not justice or righteousness and judgment. Following my heart is what I'm told will make me happy and it's the key to fulfilment. Even the Azuzu Karad tells me to go my own way. And here's a bit of trivia for you. What song from the last 50 years has spent most time in the UK charts? And we're talking 124 weeks straight. It was written 50 years ago and it hasn't been beaten to this day. That's nearly two and a half years. And Pete reminded us last week, it's still the most popular song at funerals today. And it is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. Um, the alternative way that Frank is talking about, perhaps uh, institutions, perhaps uh, other people, but I think the last verse of the song actually hints on what Frank's alternative way might be. For what is man, what has he got, if not himself, then he has naught, to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. I think the alternative way is God's way. It's the essence of the first sin and every sin after that. It's the anthem of our world and it certainly would have been Felix's life's anthem. I think Tina Sinatra, Frank's daughter, summed up the life of her father and indeed every person who lives by this anthem well when she said he was a man who all his life looked outside for what was missing on the inside. You see, if the hole in our heart is not filled by God, then we'll look for something else, be it money or pleasure or fame or reputation, and they will not serve us well. Frank Sinatra's third wife said he had everything and nothing. Entertainment and laughs he never seemed to get enough. Because without God, nothing or anything is enough. It will always fall short. You have made us for yourself, said Augustine, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Well, some final thoughts with this passage. When Paul talks about self-control and righteousness and judgment, he's not speaking from a moral high horse. He's not declaring himself to be perfect and sinless. He's actually speaking from a position where he recognises he's the chief of sinner. He's a wretched man. And the Christian message is not legalism and perfect obedience. We've already seen the failures of the Jewish religious people who tried to live that way. Now, Paul mentions self-control, righteousness and judgment from a position of one who's experienced God's unmerited grace, his free forgiveness. Because Jesus showed complete self-control and complete righteousness, he lived the perfect life and he offered that life for me to take my sinful life and to give me his perfect life in its place. I become the recipient of Christ's righteousness. And so God's judgment will ultimately fall on Christ and not 
on me. And I think when we've understood that truth, the heart of the gospel right there, that empowers us to transformation and change. Through God's spirit, we are able to start showing self-control, to grow in righteousness. Never perfectly in this world and always by grace as we fall and stand up again. But it is through the power of God's love that we come to genuine change. Well, there's the three lifestyles. We've got the religious, we've got the irreligious, and we've got the gospel-transformed life of Paul. What is your verdict? It's not a word. It's an action. It's the way you will live your life, and it will be one of those three. May it be the gospel-transformed life, the life of Paul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this passage, we thank you for what it shows us of Paul, his great conviction to live for you despite the trials around him, the hope that he has in you, the love that he knows he's received from you. I pray, Father, that this will be our experience and we might boldly go out to proclaim our faith despite the opposition we face to show that we are followers of you. In Jesus' name, amen.